Let us, let us turn our hearts to God in a word of prayer. Our Father, in Christ's name, we come and we thank you for the Scripture, we thank you for the Holy Spirit, and we thank you for Jesus, to whom they testify to. Father, we thank you for this time, and we pray for our hearing and for, uh, at this time my speaking, that you would make your appeal through me to the hearts and minds of your people, that we would be edified, built up, and made strong in Christ and in his word. Father in heaven, uh, we have no sufficiency of ourself, and so Father, would you make us sufficient by your own power uh, to be able to hear, to be able to speak in a way that you get the glory and the praise. And we leave this place more like Christ than when we came. Teach us, rebuke us, correct us, train us in righteousness. Make our lives fruitful for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, this morning, as we continue in this series of the name of the Lord from the book of Exodus, I want to direct your attention to the book of Exodus chapter 4. Uh, Exodus chapter 4. And... Um, I'm going to read the first nine verses there, if you follow along with me. Please hear uh, God's word. Exodus chapter 4, verse 1. Uh, then Moses answered, uh, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. Um, the name of the Lord. Uh, we are in this mini-series within the series on the Lord summoning His servants. Um, this is, as you may Recall, this is Moses at the burning bush um, conversing with the angel of the Lord, conversing with Jesus, really, about his going to Egypt and bringing Israel out of Egypt. And at the end of chapter 3, God paints a wonderful picture of how Moses is going to go there and he's going to bring the people out and bring them into the promised land. And they're going to go out, not empty, but go out filled up with all kinds of silver and gold and clothing. And it's a, it's a grand picture of God's uh, redemption and his, his power to, to bring his people 
to the promised land. But after all of that, Moses answered, but they won't believe. Now, um, before we jump on Moses and beat him up, um, because in chapter 3, verse 18, God said, they will believe and listen to your voice. And so it seems to be a bit of a contradiction here, but as you read through the first nine verses, you see that even God is saying, if they don't believe the first sign, maybe they'll believe the second sign. And if they even don't believe the two signs, they might believe if you pour water on the ground from the Nile. And so God understands the, the context. And Moses, within good reason, says these things because in chapter 2, verse 14, if you recall, when Moses attempted to rescue Israel, they thrust him aside and said, who made you a prince and a, 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 lord, a judge over us? And they rejected him. And so Moses is groping for some kind of authentication of himself and of his mission and his commission from God, some kind of way that, that he can be established as the servant of the Lord who's actually been sent, who, was, who, who actually had a, a theophany or a Christophany a, that, he, that God actually appeared to him because he knows the, uh, he's, he's already run into uh, the hard-heartedness of, of the Israelite uh, people. And, um, and so, that, you know, that's, that's very interesting for us as well, isn't it? That, you know, God has painted for us a beautiful picture as well of the gospel and, and going to the promised land one day. We're going to paradise. We're going to be with Jesus and see the Lord and dwell with him. And it's going to be all about Emmanuel forevermore. And he's painted that grand picture before us, and he said, well, go. Go tell him. Go bring him in. And, um, and uh, we sometimes think about ourselves and say, well, why? You know, <laughs> they're not going to believe me. I'm not Billy Graham. You know, I don't have it that way. And, um, you know, and so we, we start to doubt ourselves, and we look for some kind of encouragement some kind of strength to stand on, some kind of reason to get us out there talking to people in the market, talking to people in the square, talking to people on our jobs about Jesus and having some kind of, of courage and, and, and foundation to say what they may actually believe. And, um, you know, the Bible says the word of God that never returns to him empty but it accomplishes the purpose for which he has sent it and succeeds in the thing for which he has given it. It brings about the transformation God promised with the end result of bringing glory to the name of the Lord, the name that was just revealed to Moses at the bush. And so the Lord speaks to Moses in this particular context, and he, you know, if, you, if, you, if you've never read this before, it, it sounds like God's changing the subject, you know, um, they won't believe. Well, what's that in your hand? Let's change this. Let's talk about something else, you know. And, um, and you know, Moses responds, it's a staff. It's, it's, a, it's, a stick. it's a stick. It's a piece of wood. And God instructs him. He commands him to throw it on the ground. And so this demonstrates Moses' faith. He does everything God tells him to do in this section. He throws it on the ground, and it becomes a snake, and he runs. You know, and if you can say anything about Moses, Moses had, had sense, because I don't know how you relate to snakes, but if I see a snake, I don't just go up to it and pat it on the head and say, how are you today? I get out of Dodge, too, you know. Um, snakes got teeth, and they bite. Um, and so Moses ran from the serpent. But then uh, 
God says something very seemingly strange, and Moses demonstrates again his faith. The Lord says to Moses, uh, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. And if you know anything about snake handling, you don't grab a snake by the tail. That's a guaranteed snake bite. They're pretty quick. Um, But he does, and it turns back into a staff again. Now, uh, I don't know what your position is on evolution. Uh, I don't particularly believe in it. I don't think it's right or true. I don't think the Bible supports it in any manner. Um, But this this really (laughs) is interesting, talking about turning a a little amoeba into a lizard and then into a a gorilla and then into a human. You know, that's a bunch of crazy stuff there. Um, You had to be drinking something to to come up with something like that. Uh, But the point is that here you have God a real solid miracle, the God of all creation, he demonstrates in this action his power over all of nature. He demonstrated that at the bush. He set a bush on fire, but it still had flowers on it, still had fruit, but was, it was lit up in flame. And now he's taking a stick from a tree and turning it into a, a, a snake um, and then turning it back again. Um, you... you you probably do know, uh, but um, uh, in, in Egypt, the snake was worshipped, particularly the cobra. The serpent was, was worshipped. If you've ever seen any of the, um, I'm sure you have, any of the tombs of the, uh, the pharaohs, they all had this crown on it, and the crowns always had this little ureus on it, a snake, because it demonstrated from an Egyptian worldview it demonstrated their, their complete sovereignty and authority over the land, that they were the ones in charge. And, and not only that, but Egyptian, uh, the magicians, as you'll see in chapter 7, uh, when Moses actually brings this particular sign to Pharaoh, um, the Egyptian magicians, it says, by their secret arts, they throw their staffs down and they become snakes. Now, um, you know, it, it's been known that you can, you can grab, um, when I used to work in the pharmaceutical industry, uh, we could take a rabbit, and you probably noticed, you could take a rabbit and lay it flat on its back, and it becomes paralyzed. It just goes to sleep. It doesn't move. You can do all kinds of things with it, and you can have surgery on it. It won't know anything. But as soon as you move its head, it wakes right back up again. You can do that with gerbils as well. We used to have fun with the rabbits at the, um, when, the, when the supervisors weren't watching. We used to put them to sleep. Just let them lay there on the counter, three of them, you know, it's fun. Um, try it if you have, a, is anybody here have a rabbit? Sorry. Uh, anyway, but, uh, um, but the same thing is actually true of certain snakes. You can grab them behind the head a certain way and they become rigid like a stick. They become paralyzed. And maybe that's what the magicians did by their secret arts. Maybe there was some kind of demonic force that God allowed for them to turn uh, uh, their, their, their rods into snakes. Uh, we don't know, but we do know that, that Moses swallowed up their, their serpents, which does say something about who's in charge here. And so when, when God showed this sign to Moses, he was saying by this sign, and it was a sign to authenticate Moses' ministry as well as his commission from God before the Israelites and then later before the Egyptians. But God was saying, um, I know um, that the Egyptians worship the serpent and it's a sign down in Egypt of the Pharaoh's authority, uh, but I'm the one who's in charge of Egypt. I control Egypt. I can turn things, uh, 
towards my, the way I want them to be. And so God showed his, his authority over the serpent, which represented Egypt. And it showed not only God's authority over Egypt, but it also showed that God had given Moses authority. He had put authority in Moses' hand uh, over Egypt. The snake represented Egyptian authority, Egyptian sovereignty. It represented their power over the people, their power over the land. Many pharaohs had a, uh, a scepter that had a snake on the end of it when they demonstrated their authority over uh, their people. As I, as I think about this passage and I think about um, how it points us to the Lord Jesus and uh, his own authority and power, you know, it's interesting how God took what Egyptians saw as their proof of their authority and God took charge of it and took control of it and gave Moses the ability to control it and take charge of it. Um, and I think about Christ and how when he was on earth, uh, the Romans um, had several symbols, several ways of demonstrating their authority over their land. One was a sign of the eagle. That was a sign of Roman authority. Another was a sign of the cross. The cross in Rome demonstrated that they were the chief judges. They decided who lived and who died. They were the ones who who could uh, condemn you. And how when Jesus was put on a cross, uh, the Romans were thinking as they paraded Jesus through the land, bearing his cross, uh, that was their way of saying, we have triumphed over this so-called king. We are ruling over him. We're going to take him to his death and, and crucify him and demonstrate the power of Rome demonstrate that you don't mess with Rome and get away with it. And um, it's interesting how Jesus took that same image of a cross and transformed it uh, into an image of his own power and authority. In the book of Colossians, it says in chapter 2, uh, beginning at verse 14, it talks about this. It says that Jesus, when he was on the cross, he canceled the record of our debt that stood against us with its legal demands this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him or in the cross. And so while Jesus was stripped naked and laid on the cross, they thought that they were putting him to an open shame. When in fact Jesus was putting all of the rulers and authorities, the principalities, the powerful dark forces, the wicked spirits in heavenly places, he was stripping them of their authority and putting them to an open shame, not, as well as Rome. And Jesus was demonstrating by his own crucifixion that he's the one with all power and authority in his hand. And, um, and then when you bring that home uh, uh, to us, that... You know, Jesus said at one point, a foolish and adulterous generation looks for a sign. And no sign would be given to it but the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the, in the heart of the earth. And so the sign that Jesus puts before us more than anything is the sign of his cross. And that cross of Christ demonstrates his authority and power 
over every single nation and authority and ruler. Paul said it uh, like this in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, um, because each of us is sent, maybe not exactly the way Moses was, but each of us has been sent by the Lord Jesus. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, Paul said, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. And if you look at this passage, it's very interesting. It says the weapons that we have have divine power. And that should make us think in terms of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to all who believe. Because the strongholds that we destroy uh, the, are, are, are lofty opinions. They're arguments that people have raised up that are against the knowledge of God. And the knowledge of God comes to us through Jesus Christ. That's Satan's chief objective is to lead us astray from a pure devotion to Jesus. Satan's objective is to lead us from loving Jesus. He doesn't want people loving Jesus. And the Bible says that we, through the Gospel, are able to take every thought captive to obey Jesus Christ, to love Jesus Christ. And that brings us also to another signifier of God's people, an authenticator of God's people. Jesus said, love one another. By this all men shall know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And that love that we have for each other issues from the gospel. It comes forth from Calvary. It comes forth from the foundation of having been loved by Jesus Christ. What is the sign in our day that we truly are disciples of the true God? It's that we love one another. What is another way that that's signified? It's through preaching the gospel to the lost. It's bearing witness that God has all authority and power in His hand. When, when, when God told Moses to take charge of this, this snake and to take control of it, and it became a serpent, a, a rod again. He's saying that, Moses, I have placed authority in, in your hand, in my rod, because that's what he calls it in chapter 4, verse 20, take the rod of God with you. That rod had become now not only Moses' staff as he shepherded, it became God's rod. And um, he demonstrates through that action of, of Moses grasping Egypt, as it were, by the tail and putting it in his control, in his charge, that God has now equipped Moses for this journey. God has given you the Spirit of God. He has given you the Word of the Gospel. He has given you the power to love. Wherever you set your foot, God has given you the authority that comes from the Gospel. It's not authority intrinsic within us. But Jesus said, I am with you always. And so he commissions us to make disciples. He commissions us to teach others. 
And by that word of the gospel, by that word of truth, the scripture, God takes every thought captive as we converse with others. He rescues people from the domain of Satan, from the domain of darkness, and brings them into the marvelous light of God. He's given that kind of authority to us. The Lord who sends us wants to work powerfully through us to bring people to faith in Him. Um, That power also is demonstrated in unity, the unity that's in the body of Christ. Uh, God is not interested in in just unity for unity's sake. Uh, God is interested in, in unity that we find in Jesus Christ. That's the unity that that God uses to demonstrate before a world of lost souls that we are actually sent by God. Jesus prayed, Father, make them one so the world might know the gospel that you've sent your son. Make them one. And so we, are, as God's people, are called to, to, to unity, to peace within the body of Christ to seek unity, to maintain the unity that Jesus has created by His Spirit among us. Not only that, but as we continue to read, we find that God has another sign that He gives to to Moses. He tells him to put his hand inside of his cloak and pull it out, and it becomes leprous, like snow. Um, It's not necessarily referring to Hansen's disease, It could be talking about any kind of skin abnormality. But the point is, his skin became bright red and flaky like snow. That's how leprosy and these sorts of diseases usually affect a person. They become like a stillborn baby. A stillborn baby is usually like cherry red with very flaky skin. And then he put his hand back in his cloak and it was restored like the rest of his flesh. This is a very personal sign, and one of the things that God is teaching here, it's known that leprosy was was something that took place in Egypt, and one of the things that God is communicating to Moses is he has his power to heal, his power to bring healing and restoration. But it's also interesting to note that the only other place in the Pentateuch where there is an explicit case of leprosy there's a lot of legislation with respect to, leg- to leprosy in, in, in Leviticus and what to do if, if, you, if you, you are a leper and you, you're put outside the camp and what to do with the lepers when you find them inside the camp. There's a lot of legislation, but there's only one other place in the Pentateuch where there's actually an explicit case of someone being a leper. And it's the case of Miriam, Moses' older sister. And why did she become a leper? The Bible says because she rejected the authority of Moses that God gave him. She, she, would not, uh, she, was, she was not, as it says in Numbers, uh, Numbers chapter 12, if you uh, skip over there, but Numbers chapter 12, it says that um, Marion and Aaron actually, uh, they spoke with Moses about his Cushite wife. They spoke against him, uh, trying to find something wrong with him. Um, and, and we have to be careful, uh, I know I have to be careful, but um, we have to be careful to keep us from a negative spirit. You know, sometimes we, we come to church and, and we, we just look for something wrong, uh, something to complain about, something to grumble about, and we find that in the life of Israel. 
One of the things that's very interesting to note is that all the people who came out of Egypt 20 years and above never made it into the promised land because they had this issue with grumbling and complaining, not believing, despising the authority structures that God had placed over them. And Miriam, um, you know, it says that, and suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and to Miriam, come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. It's like they were called to the principal's office almost, you know. And the three of them came out and, and God expressed to them how Moses was a, was a unique prophet. He'd speak to prophets all kinds of ways in dreams and visions, but Moses was his friend. He spoke to him face to face. He sat across the table with him, so to speak. And he says to Miriam, why weren't you afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Um, and when, when, when a cloud was removed, Miriam was leprous like snow. And... Um, you know, it's, it's, you know, you look at the life of David, and, and David had this, this thing going on with Saul, and Saul was trying to kill David, and, and David just, just cut a little piece of Saul's robe just to kind of authenticate himself, to prove that he was on his side, and it, he was struck to the heart just for doing that. He said, how dare I try to reach my hand out against the Lord's anointed, you know, and and as you think about this, it's not only talking about people in leadership, it's to, all of God's people are anointed. Isn't that right? But it is something to be said about uh, Moses as the leader sent by God. And, and, and Moses was, he was a little reluctant to go, and he finally got around to it. We'll find in the next section that God actually gets angry with Moses because he's making excuses now. Um, God was walking with him patiently with all of this, condescending kindly towards him. You know, um, if God says that the people are going to believe, they'll believe, because God said they'll believe. But Moses says, I don't think they will. And God says, okay, let me just come down to your level and try to give you something here to help you out. Um, but, but he says, he shows Moses this leprosy, which Moses later shows to the Israelites, interestingly. He never shows it to the Egyptians, but he shows it to the Israelites. And when you put that story of Miriam with this particular instance of leprosy, the two explicit uh, demonstrations of leprosy, cases of leprosy in the Pentateuch, Moses is writing. God is making a connection. When you read stuff like that, you have to make that connection. That God is saying through Moses and to Moses, don't reject authority. Moses, don't you reject my authority as the Lord. And he's saying to Israel later on, don't you reject this man's authority. He's sent by the Lord. And when they do, they always went south. Um, you know, and so God speaks to us, not only works through us powerfully, but also works through us uh, personally. Uh, God told Abraham uh, long ago um, that I will bless those who bless you and those who dishonor you, I will curse. And that's true of all of God's people. But we have to be careful. Um, I, I try my best not to speak about or against televangelists. I don't like a lot of the things that they do. I don't agree with most of what they do. When you see people trying to authenticate themselves by so-called healings and, and um, making people who never walked in their life begin to walk. God is able to do whatever he wants to do. But when people try to make a quick buck on things like this, it is damaging to the body of Christ. And it pays to pray for those in positions of authority. Pray before you say. Seek God before you speak. That's a lesson all of us could learn, uh, to be slow to speak, 
quick to hear, careful how we talk about one another, careful about how we talk about our leaders. I said last week that whether you agree or disagree with the present administration in Washington, if we prayed for folk as much as we complained about folk, they might actually change. Um, and so, so you see this interesting example that God gives him. He says that they don't believe the first sign, maybe they'll believe the second sign. It was a sign with a dual message to Israel, don't mess with Moses. You better receive him. You rejected him the first time, receive him this time. And also, in this land of Egypt, you've experienced things and you've seen things like leprosy. God is a healer. He can restore people back to health again. Whatever, we, whatever Israel thought they might have lost being slaves all those years, God is able to put it back together again. Um, not only that, but God goes on to um, give, them a, give him a third sign, demonstrating his absolute preeminence, not only his authority over Egypt, but his preeminence over Egypt with this sign to take some water from the Nile and pour it on the ground and it would become blood. Now the Nile, as you know, was worshipped by Egypt. The Nile was, was the lifeblood, no pun intended, of Egypt. It's where Egypt got their trade. It's where Egypt got their, their water for their crops and everything came out of the Nile. And they saw the Nile as the, uh, the life of Egypt. It was how Egypt became prominent as a nation. It had those deltas going up there in the, the great river. It flowed into the Mediterranean and it was just a, a profound um, uh, gift from God. It wasn't seen that way by Egyptians, but it was a profound gift by God that watered the land. It was almost like the Garden of Eden. It, it watered like the rivers in the Garden of Eden. Uh, often um, Egypt in the Bible is pictured as something like the Garden of Eden. It was a beautiful oasis of um, fruitfulness. And, um, but God said that he would, through Moses, he'd make the Nile bleed to death. That's what that was to communicate, is that I've killed your God. That the only one who can actually bring life is God. Egyptians were to see in this action, and, and Israelites were to see in this action, that it's not a river that we get our life from, it's God that we get our life from. God made the Nile. He's in charge of the Nile. He can dry the thing up like a desert and bring water back to it. God is able to transform things like that. It also, in Egypt, probably also pointed to um, uh, the, the, the death of God's people, thrown in the Nile. That blood, God remembered uh, the blood that was spilled of his own people, drowned in the Nile. But predominantly, the message that's being conveyed there is that God is able to strike Egypt and shed the blood of its gods. You see in the first plague, the turning of the Nile to blood, and the last plague, the death of the firstborn, this, this book ends of the life of Egypt being swallowed up. You may recall in the life of, of Abraham, when Abraham went to Egypt and his wife went to Egypt and he said, this is my sister. And she said, yeah, this is my brother. And so Pharaoh took her into his harem. He took her. It's, it's, it's the same language used in Genesis 3 with Eve. He saw her. He took her. Eve saw the fruit. She took the fruit. And um, Pharaoh intended to, to take Sarah into his harem. But the Bible says that God plagued Egypt Back in the days of Abraham, 
he gave in the life of Abraham a snapshot of what he was now going to do in real time with his people as a whole. That, that he, he, he plagued the whole nation of Egypt because of Sarah, his wife, because of Sarah, Abraham's wife, and, or Abram's wife. And, and, and Pharaoh got all upset. You know, why didn't you tell me? You know, well, would you have actually done what you're supposed to do if I told you? You know, Abraham knew some stuff. You know what I mean? But, but the point is that, that they left, Abraham and Sarai left Egypt full of all kinds of riches and, and gold and silver and cattle. So what happens now in Exodus already happened with the father of the nation. God already proved himself able to do with the couple what he's now going to do with the nation. That God aims to destroy Egypt if they seek to hold his people any longer. And he proves that. It's the same uh, with, with us, that when, when Christ came, he demonstrated his covenant devotion for us, his covenant devotion. It says in the book of, of Jeremiah about the Israelite nation, it says that when God brought them out, that he was their, their husband. That God says, Yahweh says about Israel as a nation, that uh, he's in this chapter, he's talking about the, um, uh, the new covenant that will come about. And he, he says of his people, that they were, his, they were his bride. And the same thing is true in us in Jeremiah, um, Jeremiah 31. It says in verses, let me just read those verses. Jeremiah 31, uh, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. And so it's the same thing with, with Abraham and Sarah that happened with, Nate, with the Israel nation, Israelite nation and, and Yahweh. And the same thing is true of us. God has brought us out, uh, not, by, not by killing the Nile or making it bleed, but, but interestingly, God has brought us out by the blood of his own son. He's brought us out of... Um, bondage to Satan, bondage to sin by the, the sign of the blood of the cross. And, um, and, and we, uh, in, in recognition of that, we celebrate the supper in recognition of Christ's blood that was spilled, his body that was broken. And Moses had this, this sign, these three signs to authenticate the power of God um, and the preeminence of God. And we have those uh, similar signs given to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The impact, the power of the gospel in our lives. The transformation that it makes in our, our walk every day. When people ask for proof, ask for some kind of sign. How can you prove that Christianity is the, is the way to God? How can you prove that, that Jesus is really all that he says he is? It's interesting that Jesus tells us simply to show love, simply to walk in holiness, simply to proclaim the gospel, what, what, what Paul coined the foolishness of the cross and watched the Spirit work through the Word to bring people out of slavery and bondage into the marvelous light of God. God has power to work through your simple proclamation of His truth, the Scripture. He has power to use the text of Scripture. The Bible is powerful. 
And sometimes we, we forget that reality. And it's demonstrated how sometimes we, we fail to read it. Often, notice when I've counseled people in the past that they, they're going through all kinds of troubles and all kinds of struggle, and I say, well, what are you, what are you reading right now in the Scripture? And, oh, I haven't really got around to reading my Bible lately. Oh, okay. Uh, well, what are you praying about uh, to God? Well, I don't really have a lot of time to do that. And so we lose that personal interaction with God himself. And it, it shows itself in our walk. When the church was in its, in, its, in, its, uh, in its beginning stages, and it says the people gathered together and they prayed. And, and it says they prayed to a sense that the, that, the, that the building shook when they got done praying. And um, uh, the people proclaimed the truth of God's word. You know, back in the day, they didn't have all the commentaries and and I'm partly preaching to myself right now, but they didn't have all the commentaries and the books and all that everybody else wrote about the Bible. They had the text of Scripture. And they were desperate with the text of Scripture. And that's what God wants with us, is that we would study His Word, that we would meditate on it, that we'd be filled with it richly, so that when we open our mouth, that, that everything we say is now colored and controlled by the truth of Scripture. And that people would see that. They would hear the gospel in our lives. Um, uh, the word of God is, is, is so, so potent. Um, you know, I, I, when people say, well, I, I get bored reading the Bible. And, and the Bible's not boring. Uh, we're the ones who are boring. And when you get to that point where you're bored, take a passage of Scripture. Pray about it. And read it every single day for a week and see if it doesn't let light you up on fire. It will. I've experienced this, and so have many of you, that when you memorize, when you hide that word in your heart with an endeavor to do what God says, to respond to what he said, you know, uh, to make it personal, not just to read it with your brain and know it, but to read it with your heart and show that you've read it by the way you live your life. That's what the world, the world does not need all of the, uh, uh, the miraculous and the wonders and the signs uh, uh, to come to faith in Christ. Uh, Jesus said that himself when, when he gave the story about Lazarus and, and the rich man. And, and the rich man wound up in hell and Lazarus was in the bosom of Abraham. And he said, oh, oh, Father Abraham, send him, send him to some of my brothers. And they, they said, well, they have the law, they have the prophets. Well, no, no, no. If they, if they see someone rise from the dead they'll really believe, and, 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 God, and the response is, even if they see someone rise from the dead, they won't believe if they, if they reject the law and the prophets. If they reject the word of God, even the miraculous uh, won't, won't impress them, won't bring them to faith in Jesus. And so, so we should not be a people who are, is always looking for a sign, always looking for something spectacular, something, something majestic, something monumental, God, I want you to do something. Give me a sign. Give me a dream. Give me a vision. We should stop praying prayers like that. God has done the most profound thing that could ever be done by getting up on a cross naked and dying for your sin. There is no, there is no more miracle more profound than God on a cross and then rising from the dead. And so the simple message of God's love demonstrated graciously through Jesus Christ is what God needs from you and me, to signify to one another 
as well as to the world that we are authentic followers of Jesus Christ. The love that we have for each other, the Bible says, is what authenticates us before one another as well as before the world. By this, all men shall know you are my disciples if you love one another. Just a simple thing like love. It's simple but profound. Um, how do you know a couple is in love? Because they love each other. And anybody can love when everything is rosy and happy and, 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 and glad. Got money in the bank. Got new clothes. Bills are paid. It's easy to love folk like that. But when you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow and your husband gets on your nerves, and um, I know I'm not preaching only to myself, but, uh, and, and your wife doesn't cook the dinner exactly the way you wanted it to be, or your husband doesn't cook the dinner exactly the way you want it to do. I know we got, you know, old feminist thing going on now, but, but the point is that, um, I know I'm going to get some emails about that one, but uh, I'm just telling you now, I already know I went down the wrong road, but just... But, but the point is that people know uh, you are a child of God by the way you love one another, by the way you love the lost, by the way you make the gospel prominent, make it the point of the conversations that you have. That's what authenticates us in ministry, in life. God stooped to help Moses out because God said, hey, if, they, if God said they believe, they're going to believe. And that's what happens at the end of chapter 4. They see the signs, they do believe. And, um, but, but, but let the gospel rule in your heart. Let the love of Christ rule in your heart. Let the love for the lost rule in your heart. Change your schedule so that you can go share the gospel with somebody else. God says it's by this unity, this love, and this gospel that our lives are authenticated as genuine servants of the Lord. And God will open up the ears and people will hear. Let's pray. Our Father, in Christ's name, we thank you for um, our own weakness through which your power is made perfect. Father, thank you that we don't need to produce signs and wonders. We don't need to do something miraculous or profound in order to be uh, proven your disciples. Father, thank you that we don't have to conjure up some kind of potion or some kind of of exciting thing for people to finally say, oh yes, now I believe in Jesus. But Father, we simply need to love you, to love your people, to love the lost, and to plainly tell people what you've done through Jesus Christ, your Son, for your glory and for our good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Empower us for this. Amen.